Good morning. Let's come back together. Let's come back together. Uh, if you haven't already found a seat, uh, let me encourage you to come and find one, and uh, you can hopefully uh, pick up on those conversations uh, later on. Um, let me just very, very quickly before... No, you can't. Just give me a second, okay? Will you do me a favor? So I didn't name. What's her first? What's her first name? Antonia. Antonia. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Okay. I will. Yeah, he does. Okay. Okay. We're all good. We're all good. Um, there are times when God just breaks into our times together as a community and we hear him speak in uh, maybe unexpected ways. Um, but I'm willing to hear that. Um, actually, um, the poor, the, the marginalized, the least, we, we do need to hear their voice and we need to work on their behalf. Uh, as opposed to just pretending like, well, how inconvenient, how, how could that person interrupt a preacher? I'm totally fine with that. And they're absolutely welcome here. And um, uh, can we just pray? Let's just take a minute to pray about that. Um, because we don't want to just rush on past that. Uh, Lord, we just want to say that we love you. And Lord, we are a church that is willing to hear you speak in, ever, in whatever ways it comes to us. And uh, Lord, we want to thank you for Antonia's courage and her heart and her passion. And Lord, we do ask you that, Lord, just generally for people who are going without today, uh, people who don't have the warmth and comfort of family, and uh, people who are here who've been trafficked in our city, people who are being forced into uh, living in ways that they just do not want to live, just to put food in their belly. And Lord, we pray that you give us courage where we lack it, and wisdom where we need it to be uh, with the people that you send us to go to. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, no worries, love. You're welcome. Um, grateful um, for um, what God's doing uh, with our community and excited uh, to be in this season that we're in uh, as a church family. Uh, just last week, we started uh, a, a process that we've been in before uh, where we are um, digging back down into our foundations as a community, where we're asking questions, we're trying to be courageous and trying to be wise, and we're trying to remind ourselves, what is it that matters to us? 
What is it that makes the church the church? What is it that makes St. Catherine's St. Catherine's? And, and there's a reason for that. Because vision leaks. We, we, we forget what's important. So it's good to be reminded every once in a while, in maybe in a way that we wouldn't have anticipated or sought out, what it is that is on God's heart and what he wants of us. Vision leaks, and we forget. Simple as that. In fact, uh, there are some lead- leadership experts who've written about this, and they would suggest that actually the church needs to do something every six weeks around vision so that we continue to grow in our ability to understand who are we? Why do we do the things that we uh, do as the church? And while we're not in the habit of doing something vision-related every six weeks, I do think that it's healthy for the church to be able to get better at telling its story. I do think it's healthy for us to get clearer about why we do what we do. So here's a little bit of a roadmap. Last week, uh, we talked about these aren't in order of importance, and I'm not going to be talking about them all uh, this morning. If you're new here or visiting, you can relax. Um, And especially, just I don't know if I missed it, I think there's some visitors here from Trinity College CU. If you were here this morning and you're on the tour of um, churches in Trinity CU, you're very welcome. And it's good to have you with us. But this is a little bit of a roadmap. If you, last week, we looked at what it means to have as a center of our life together to put Jesus right at the center, to, put, to, to make Jesus the foundation of our life together, to build on him like we were singing, and to ask ourselves that difficult question, are there times when we drift from Jesus? As individuals, are there times where we drift from Jesus as a community, And when we do, when we drift, when we forget, when we lose the path, what are the things that have led us to that place? And how can we notice it so that we stay the course and that we are unashamed about our love of Jesus? Jesus first. Jesus at the center. Jesus in all things. Uh, next week, uh, and, or the week after, and the week after that, we're going to be thinking about giving and serving. What are the gifts that you have? What does it look like for you to play your part in the life of this church family? Maybe it's one thing, maybe it's another. It's not all about serving in the same way, in the same capacity, but maybe there's things that you can do that only you can do, that I can't do. Things that Jamie can do. Amazing worship this morning. What a gift. Thank God. In terms of giving, what does it look like to play your part in terms of giving? What what does it look like for you to give generously and creatively, financially, into the life of the church? We desperately need our church families to be giving faithfully, obediently, courageously. But today what we're going to be thinking about is community and family. What does it mean for us to operate as family. Why is that important to the life of our church? But I suppose in revisiting our foundations together as a church, it's not just to give you more information. On top of all of the other information that you've got, you've got to carry around with you. 
but it's to ask the question, are you, are you in? Are you all in? Are you on this journey with us? Are you, are you all in forgiving? Are you all in? Is this what you want? Are you with us? Are you following Jesus? Are you putting him first? Is he at the center of your life? And are you committed to a community here in St. Catharines? This is not the first time I've spoken uh, about community uh, over the last year and a half that I've been here as minister in charge. Uh, One of the ways that we've reflected on this over the last year, um, you might remember, is looking at the emerging pattern of the early church that we can see in (coughs) Acts chapter 2 alongside of this picture of temple experience where people are all together in one place. Alongside of that, we see this network of smaller household family units where people are sharing their lives with one another in a costly way. And that in and of itself is the conduit that we are sharing the gospel with culture through. I'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But the New Testament is full of all kinds of evidence of these smaller family units. And I want us to take a couple of minutes to think about this. There's a picture for us of the crowd. Sorry, I need to... Thank you, darling. I may have shouted a little bit too loud at the rugby. Elaine was saying she's deaf in one ear because of the noises I was making. It was a very positive thing, though. And we bet Edinburgh. Come on. Another year. Isn't that right, Rob? Champions in Europe. Here we go. But what we see in the New Testament is this, is this picture of the church gathered together in one place and being scattered out into smaller family units. What we see is this picture of both the crowd and the few those uh, early believers were journeying together in both those kinds of ways. uh, Maybe if you're tracking with our daily readings in the WhatsApp groups, what you would have seen last Thursday, I was reminded of this again, absolutely fascinating passage in Acts chapter 20. The church in Ephesus and their father, the Apostle Paul is leaving them to go on to Jerusalem. And they're all crying and they're down by the boat and they're saying goodbye because Paul has that kind of sense that they're not going to see each other again. And he's poured his life into them. And he writes this, it says this, I have done the Lord's work humbly and with many tears. I love that. It's so kind of, I don't know, real and, 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 and there's that sense of vulnerability that actually when he was with them, it, it involved hard graft and actually giving it all, those, just t- weeping those tears of commitment and passion. I have endured the trials that came to me from the plots of the Jews. I never shrank back from telling you what you needed to hear, either publicly or in your homes. So even there, at the very, very beginning of the life of the church, there's this pattern, this emerging pattern of temple and home, of being together all in one place and um, being in those smaller family units. One of the other ways that we've reflected on this in the past couple of months is through the lens of the kingdom of God. 
when we look at the New Testament and what it tells us about the life and ministry of Jesus, there's this pattern, isn't there, of proclaiming there was a message that Jesus came to teach, and then there was a demonstrating We see him laying hands on the sick and then being healed. We see um, demons being cast out and all kinds of other things. But we have learned, because of the the lenses that we look through the scriptures with, we've learned to dismiss the fact, what if family was one of the most clear and concise demonstrations of the kingdom of God near? People weren't having these individual encounters with Jesus every time he was ministering and speaking and laying hands and being with the poor and all those kinds of things. He was there with a family he was doing mission with. So they were seeing the people who were eventually, I suppose, healed or brought into faith. They were seeing it happening through the lens of family, a family that ultimately they would go on to become a part of. This wasn't And we could dismiss this too easily. It wasn't just another way of kind of like breaking down numbers. Like Jesus' favorite number was 12 or something like that. I don't think that was the case. It's not in the Bible. But I'm suggesting that he didn't just break down that number into... It was about the need for that, the need for family, the need for community. And what we learn in that is ultimately that even Jesus... Even the son of the living God needed a family and a community to operate fully in his calling. Why would it be any different for us? I don't think it is. So today, I want to add another layer. And if you've got your... um, uh, another layer to this developing conversation. If you've got a Bible, maybe one of the church Bibles, a red Bible, Mick is going to come and... Um, Amy's got the mic there, Mick. Um, but Mick's going to read for us from Luke, Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, verses 24 to 35. So if you've got that open, if, you're, if you read your Bible on your phone, feel free to take that out and open it up. Mick, Thanks. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, 
Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. Amen. <clears throat> the Son of Man has come. The Son of Man has come. Maybe this is a phrase or a sentence that you're familiar with. Maybe you've heard it a number of times before. There are three ways that the New Testament (coughs) completes this sentence. I want to read them for us. The first is from Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, where we're told the Son of Man came to not to be served, but to... We are familiar with it. And to give his life as a ransom for... Later in Luke's gospel, chapter 19, verse 10, uh, he goes on to write this, the Son of Man came to seek and save the... And then today, our text uh, tells us the Son of Man came eating and drinking. It's glorious. Isn't that glorious? That's my favorite verse in the whole Bible. No. Um, The first two phrases are, are quite interesting. Because I think really, ultimately, what they are are statements of purpose. They tell us why Jesus came. This is similar to, I suppose, the focus of our conversation last week where we were thinking about that great um, Christ hymn from the book of uh, Colossians, chapter 1. Jesus came to serve. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. And he came to seek and save the lost. Wow, that's challenging. Because we have to think, well, if we're called to be like him, to embody his life and ours in community for the sake of the world, that's quite a tall order. To live our lives for others. Putting others first. Serving the least and the lost, the forgotten, like we were reminded of this morning. But the third phrase, if we think about it again from our reading, the third phrase is different. It's not a statement of purpose. It's a statement of method. Because it speaks to us about how Jesus came. He came eating and drinking. Now, I'll get into that in a second. But this phrase, um, son of man, is an interesting one. One of the first places it appears is in the prophetic book of Daniel. I don't know if that's a a book that you've spent much time reading, particularly in chapter 7. But Luke is ultimately keen to connect us to that prophetic image of this one that Daniel was prophesying, anticipating would come, that, 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 that would be given authority to rule and to reign and to bring the kingdom of God. Luke is saying, let's join the dots. Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus is the one that you've been waiting for. Jesus is the one that has all authority. Luke wants us to see that, and that's important. The question is, how does he come? And that's what I want us to grapple with together for just a couple of minutes. Is, is, is it with an army? Is that how Jesus comes? Is it on the clouds of heaven? Is that how Jesus came? Does he come with a blaze of glory? The Jews of Jesus' day would have loved that. 
They were waiting for that. They were oppressed by a regime around them, and they wanted God to come to, to slay them, to, to remove them, and to reinstate the Jews as a people. They didn't expect him to come and to open the doors wide to anyone and everyone who would come. They didn't expect him to come and to, to be eating and drinking with people who clearly belonged on the outside of the Jewish community. But Jesus did the total opposite. This is the God we serve. This is the one in whose, whose path we follow. If you look at the kind of people that Jesus spent his time with, it's a hugely challenging thing. One theologian puts it this way. I love this phrase. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or leaving a meal. It's my kind of guy. In fact, even when Jesus isn't eating, there's all these all different kinds of food references right the way through Luke's gospel. I want to just read a couple of them for us. In Luke 5, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners in Levi's house. So here we are again. We have this pattern. It's not temple. It's not crowd. They're in homes, in smaller family units, in Levi's house. Luke chapter 7, Jesus is anointed at the home of Simon the Pharisee at another meal. Luke 9, Jesus feeds five thousand people. I'd like to give that a shot one day. In Luke 10, Jesus eats in the home of Mary and Martha. We're maybe more familiar with that story. Luke chapter 11, Jesus condemns the Pharisees and teachers of the law at a meal. Luke 14, Jesus is at a meal and he urges people to invite the poor not just their friends, to the parties they're putting on. In Luke 15, some people have described the story of the prodigal son as the gospel within the gospels. Of all the potential ways that Jesus could have constructed that story, what do we see happening at the very, very heart of the homecoming scenario? What does the father say? Let's throw a party. Because what was lost is now found. In Luke 19, Jesus invites himself to dinner in someone else's house. Hey, Zacchaeus, I want to go to your house for dinner today. I think we need to get better at inviting ourselves to dinner in other people's houses. Yeah, everyone breaks eye contact with the pastor. Luke 22. How has Jesus asked us to remember him? In a, in a meal. The Last Supper. Actually, it's in eating and drinking that we are drawn into the big story of the God who comes near. 
And the way we keep rooting and centering ourselves in that story is food. Oh, this is awesome. The gastronomic gospel. It's my favorite. Luke 24, the risen Christ appears to two of his disciples in Emmaus. And it's not until they eat together that they realize it's Jesus with them. And then he appears to them and they eat fish. I'm not sure about that one. I love fish, especially Marianne's tacos. Fish tacos in Marianne's house. Invite yourself to dinner. (laughs) So this, I suppose, is just all hugely encouraging. It's so important for this, this developing picture of as we consider what are the foundations of our faith. What are the things that make the church the church? Eating and drinking. Why do you think, I I don't know what you think of this, and one of the commentaries I was reading, they were remarking how fascinating it was that the wine didn't run out at the wedding until Jesus and his disciples turned up. Connection? Maybe, maybe not. They knew how to have fun. They knew how to party. They weren't just this somber group of people, you know, floating around, Disney Jesus, and all the birds and rabbits would come. I don't know where that idea came from, but I just went with it. It's a tangent. I regret it now. And Disney Jesus. You heard it here first. Is the title maybe the title of my first book, Disney Jesus, or maybe not. If you're here as a guest, I'm joking. Don't worry. All is well. Of all the, I suppose, of all the things that we could reflect on here together this morning, I, I suppose there's just two things that I think that this text particularly has to teach us and show us. And the first is this. Meals are like miles. You go far and deep with the people that you eat with. Meals are like miles. They connect us to each other in ways that are just totally unlike other ways that we connect with people. If you're eating with the people you're doing life with in terms of the Christian faith, it makes a huge impact and difference. Over the past 20 years or so that we've been in ministry, I think probably we have seen hundreds of people grow in their faith and grow in community around our kitchen tables. It's amazing what God can do there. Here's a picture of one of our um, best experiences. I, I didn't ask everybody for their um, permission. Um, I'll put it down in a minute if it's too embarrassing. This, it's been one of the most exciting and one of the most kind of frustrating parts of our journey over the years, but it has been so, so, so good. You know, as you start building and sharing life and building community together, you start out kind of clunky, slightly awkward, and you're sharing the salt and the pepper and the butter and the pasta and everything across the table. But as time goes on, eventually what you do is you start to pass parts of yourselves across the table. And you go to a completely different level altogether. You share life, you let the walls down, and you open up, and together you walk out your Christian faith. One of our good friends, a pastor, used to be from the north coast of Ireland, a guy called Alan Scott, uh, leads a great church in Anaheim in California. We should invite ourselves to his house for dinner. But he talks about how God always brings and builds community around altars of surrender. 
God always builds community around altars of surrender. Thinking about what we thought about together last week. When we we choose Jesus, we put Jesus first, one of the results of that is always going to be deeper community. Deeper community with God, but deeper community with one another as well. Where do you have that? Where is your community? Who are the people you're growing in faith with? If you don't have that, why not? Why not? I will thank you, Antonia. Who are the people that you're growing in your faith with? I want to encourage you to join a connect group in St. Catharines if you haven't already done that. If you want to find out more information of a connect Sharon, where are you? Come and see Sharon at the Connect Point later on. She can tell you where the Connect groups are. Maybe you'd like to start a Connect group. We've got all the time in the world, all the, all the, all the resource and all the finance we need to help you do that. We'll train you. We'll show you how. We'll show you what we mean. Uh, and you won't regret it. And listen, I know, you know, all, all pastors have to kind of gauge the, the path with this. I know that your lives are full. I know all of our lives are more time poor now than ever. But if you, if you give yourself to community, you won't regress it. You'll grow in your faith. And together you'll be able to give expression to God's kingdom in a totally unique way. And I want to encourage you to do that. It's going to be key for our ongoing strength, I suppose, as individuals, but as a community as well. So the second piece, and I'll finish with this, is what I I think Luke's gospel as a whole, I was just giving you a snapshot of that earlier on and kind of, you know, mentioning one thing after another of of what Jesus is doing and, and, and how often he's eating and all of that kind of stuff. But I think this passage tells us something more of what we can expect from community in terms of fruit. Whatever, whatever way we aim to interpret this passage, one of the things that it does is that it reminds us that Jesus' own missional strategy involved long meals that stretched into the night. It did. I think there's, there's overwhelming evidence to suggest that. And I'm not reducing church and mission to meals. I don't want anyone to misunderstand what I'm saying here. But what I am suggesting to our community, especially if you're here and you see yourself as a part of the church family here in St. Catharines, I do believe, and I want to argue that I believe meals and all that they signify are integral to the life that we're called and the path we're called to walk. Because I think that Jesus, yes, he did discipleship and he grew people in their faith around tables, but he also did evangelism around kitchen tables and when they ate as well. And the two elements, they work side by side. Mission and discipleship are not separated in the New Testament. And I want to just say a few more things uh, about this. These smaller family units that we see littered throughout the New Testament, they are, I believe, a perfect pathway for somebody who's maybe on the outskirts of faith and they're not ready. All of the kids have just come back and I'm running out of time. 
But I believe that it is that these small family units are the perfect pathway for people who are on the outside of faith, interested in spirituality, to find their way into the kingdom. This image here on the screen, I wanted to show this. This is something, uh, maybe you've read about this, it's something called the Engel scale. And basically in broad brushstrokes, in image, this image is meant to show us that starting if you look at number one, right the way up to 16 plus, that the, the amount of times or points of contact that somebody outside of the church may need to have with the church for them to consider making a decision to surrender to Jesus, which we see in number 10. To that movement between fringe to family, someone who's right the way out and has nothing to do with faith in the church, it may take a considerable number of steps and points of contact for them to consider maybe giving their own life to Jesus and coming into the life of our church. I suppose the, the, the point I'm making is that a Sunday gathering like this cannot achieve and be the sole single point of contact with people in our lives who are exploring faith. We are going to need smaller, compact, family-sized units where people can uh, come into the life of the church and explore spirituality and faith with us. And we've learned, what we've learned over the last 20 years or more, is that kitchen tables and sitting rooms are a perfect tool for bringing people one step, two steps, four steps at a time into the kingdom and to see people coming to faith. This was the case. I've asked her permission, so don't think I'm putting our friend Marion. Uh, Marion, give everybody a wave how amazing she is. Uh, Marion is someone that Becky and I met at the school gate. She's someone that we met at school. Her daughter goes to the same school that our daughters go to. And eventually, um, our, our daughters became friends, and Becky was over um, uh, picking up our youngest, Evelyn, from a play date with Marion at her home. Marion being Marion says, come on in. And they got talking. I think it was a matter of weeks later, she came to one of our community walks, which was not in church. It was not in our home. It was in Glendalough, where we were walking around just to eat and to drink and to have fun. We had great pastries that day. Now, I'm not sure, and I checked this with her earlier on, that Marion's first step into faith would have been through these doors. Is that right, Marion? That's just not where she was at. But a, a step into family, a walk around Glendalough, a Christmas party for friends, a cinema night out for women in the community, a mini golfing tournament. I have to be I'm so ashamed. Andrew, uh, Andrew McNeil, uh, we, we did not perform that day um, in the, the golfing department. And Marion, on her first time, knocked it out of the park and got herself a medal. And there, those two girls on the right there, they're another just couple of our daughter's friends that aren't at the, weren't at that time in the community and still aren't, but they were kind of brought into the, the patterns of our community and what we were doing with our time. Slowly but surely, Marion and her daughter became part of our family and our community. One of, one of my favorite stories uh, of Marion's journey is the very first time that we sang a single worship song at the end of a meal. And it was one of those perfect times where having sung a song, as soon as we finished, we just kind of, just kind of held that space and the presence of God came into the room as we worshipped. 
And I put the guitar down. I was just about to get on with the rest of the night. And she was like, hold on a minute. What was that? How electric it was to see her experiencing in that space the power and presence of God for the very first time in our kitchen, around our table, with our children, all with us. This is something that we can all do. This is something we're called all to do. And she didn't mean the singing, even though the singing was amazing that night. I don't know who was leading. It it might have been me, actually. Um, But what a great question. What was that? What a great question. There was lots of other people that we invited from the school gate and from our friends and families. Lots of people, Marion, invited who never came. There's lots of people who came and journeyed with us and just decided it was just too costly. They just didn't really, really ultimately want community. And so they left. But Dublin is full of people looking for connection. Dublin is full of people like Marion. Dublin is full of people like me, people who just long for connection, for community, and who want to know God, but they just don't really know how to put words on that and how to find their way in. And, you know, I've said this before, and... You know, people have maybe misunderstood what I've said, but we need to have another strategy as a church than opening the the, the doors of this space for two hours on a Sunday. One day a week. We have to have another strategy and just hoping that people will come to us, that Dublin will see the light and just flood this church. We're going to need to go to their houses. We're going to need to go onto the streets. We're going to need to go in Jesus' name, in the power of the Spirit, and through family, witness to the world around us. There's another way to live. There's another way to be. I'm not criticizing our times here together on a Sunday. I love them. And I've grown fonder and fonder and fonder of our times together here. But we we need to explore and to pioneer and to pilot expressions of those family, smaller family units that we see littered throughout the New Testament. That's going to be one of the things that's not just going to bring health to this place, but I believe it's one of the things that God's going to use to grow this church. Because we are called to be citywide in our focus and not just focused on this street and on the footprint of this building. There's more. God has more for us. The question is, are you in? Do you want that? The question is, will we give our time to this? Will we open up our homes and lives for the sake of others who are far from Jesus or who are close? They just need to be invited. This Luke text and the others that it points us to, they remind us of two things. Firstly, food has the power to turn strangers into friends. Where do you have this? Where, who are the people you're growing in your faith with? Who knows you? One of our um, friends, a pastor, 
used to you take that word intimacy and turn it into the into me see. Where do you have that? Where, do you, where are you growing in your faith? And then secondly, Jesus' missional strategy was long meals that stretched into the night. Who could you invite for dinner this autumn? Who is it that out of your friends and your family and your colleagues at work are close and are interested in your faith and are asking questions? Let's stand and pray together.